everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Are You Kidding Me? I'm Naomi Schaefer-Riley, a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Hello, Naomi, and this is Ian Rowe, also a senior fellow at AEI. And today we are thrilled to be joined by one of our great AEI colleagues, Rick Hess. Um, we are talking to Rick today about chat GBT and what artificial intelligence might mean for the future of classrooms. So thanks for joining us, Rick. Hey, great to be with you guys. Thanks for having me. So you wrote this piece about uh, asking whether ChatGBT, this new artificial intelligence tool that people are using to write papers, um, might change the flipped classroom. So explain what we mean by the flipped classroom. We actually <laughs> talked a, bit, a little bit about the flipped classroom on our last episode of Are You Kidding Me? But uh, for those those listeners who are not all caught up on their podcast, you can explain that and explain what you mean. Why Why would artificial intelligence change that? Uh, sure. So flipped classroom, the idea is in traditional classroom, you sit in that room and learn stuff, and then you go home and do assignments. Um, and the thinking behind this is that that's a nutty way to do it, because where you actually want students to be processing and making sense is interactively with their teachers and with their peers, and where you want them just sitting and getting is not in a classroom with uh, with educators and and, and peers, but you want them just getting stuff at home. And the logic is that historically, it was tough for schools to flip that way. But with modern technology, um, it's easier, if you think of, say, Khan Academy, it's much easier for students to get and absorb and master content at home and then go into school and actually uh, interact and learn. Now, this is ChatGPT is important here for two reasons. One, the whole flipped classroom story is kind of wrong to begin with because we've had these things called books for like five centuries. And if you actually were thoughtful about having your kids learn stuff, they could go home, read books and learn and then come in and talk. And so there's a problem that schools have not really done that for the better part of five centuries. Um, but then the other piece is ChatGPT, which has this incredible AI driven writing facility, raises the concern that if we have students mastering content and demonstrating their mastery by writing about it at home, we may no, no longer be able to be sure students are actually showing the mastery of the concept or the skills, but they're just outsourcing this to ChatGPT, bringing AI written work to school. And there's a possibility that we have no idea whether or not students are learning yeah. what we want them to learn. So Rick, just, just for our audience, can you give an example of how a student would use ChatGPT? Like what, what, what's a prompt? How does it work? What gets popped out? Sure. So you might say, you know, you might be asked uh, to write a summary of your book chapter on the causes of the Civil War. And a student would turn on ChatGPT, prompt it to write uh, an 800 word essay um, explaining the causes of the Civil War for a general audience. And Within a matter of moments, the student's work has been done for him or her. But now, but let's say all let's say all twenty five kids in that section went to ChatGPT at the same time because they were all given the same assignment. How does it, how does ChatGPT differentiate mine versus my twenty four other classmates if they all went on with the same prompt? That's that's a fantastic question. Um, you know what? And, and and I literally do not know the answer to that. Whether or not there is some built in variability there. Um, this is one of the things that, you know, you started to see these marketing materials from tech firms saying we can spot um, chat GPT uh, driven work 
Um, most folks in the field think this is mostly nonsense, but in these particular circumstances, the exact same prompt um, on the exact same field of knowledge, um, it's very possible that it would turn out identical essays. And in those cases, uh, you would wind up being able to spot this stuff. So this is you know, really a question about how we are going to be able to measure some kind of individual achievement absent you know, technological aids. Um, and I'm not sure whether that's something that educators currently view as valuable right now. I mean, um, so my my idea that I periodically bring out, you know, for the last, I don't know, 15 years is, you know, the SATs used to have this writing section. It sort of came in and then went out again. Um, and I wasn't a huge fan of it, but I actually thought the best way to use it would actually be to replace college essays with the SAT writing section because it meant that you couldn't get any help. Um, you would just send the essay that you wrote in 40 minutes sitting in this proctored classroom to colleges and they could judge, you know, whether you had an interesting mind, whether you understood English grammar, all these things. And, you know, you couldn't pay for, you know, a consultant to sit there with you and, and edit it. So I'm trying to figure out whether, like, you know, whether there's going to be a market out there for somebody to say, you know, I'm going to offer proctored exams um, where I ensure that, you know, kids have to write something on their own for a half an hour or an hour, um, or even whether employers might want to sponsor something like that. Yeah, I mean, there obviously will be. Um, And, you know, it's almost a certainty that the folks who need to look at, um, writing of potential employees to just make decisions about whether to hire folks are going to be leading the pack on this. So consulting firms, law firms that have a very concrete reason to worry about whether the people they're hiring are capable of generating coherent prose. Um, but sure, I mean, in some ways, you know, one of the interesting things is how much this actually rhymes with previous generations of tech and classrooms, um, low tech and high tech. So things like calculators um, and things like just old school plagiarism. Um, you know, for years, there's been a concern that students in college buy uh, their 10-page papers from these paper mills or that, that just have rosters of thousands of papers on demand. And especially back before the Internet, back in the 80s and 90s, students would send a check for 1995 and they would mail it off and they would ask for a paper on this topic and they would get it mailed back. And in order to address the kinds of issues that Ian just put raised with, re with regards to JetGBT, they would make sure that they weren't selling the same paper to multiple students in a given class at a given institution. So I, I suspect that folks who want to use ChatGBT for illicit ends are quickly going to learn some of these tricks of the trade yep. to do that. Um, but sure, so, so I think you're going to absolutely see, you know, this cat and mouse game between folks who want to use ChatGPT to get out of the work and folks who want to use it to catch them. I mean, one of the interesting things about how far along this already is, is uh, in late January, this outfit, Intelligent.com, did a survey asking current college students um, if they have used ChatGPT for any of their work that they have turned into their classes. And this was about eight or nine weeks after ChatGPT was introduced to the world. 30% um, of four-year college students already said they had turned in ChatGPT-derived work and one out of 30 said it was doing all of their work already. And more specifically to the essay question that Naomi raises, um, we also know from surveys that about 30 to 35% of college students admit that they have somebody else write their essays for them. And that's not even an that's even above and beyond um, 
the students who get help on their essays from coaches or parents or what have you. So one way to think about this is GPT is democratizing and making visible a bunch of longstanding problems um, that yeah. already infest the way we think about individual merit and individual work. And maybe by aggravating those problems, it gives us an opportunity to confront them and address them in productive ways. I mean, this is just extraordinary. I mean, how much do you think we potentially should be addressing this through things like ethics and code of honor? Because what you're fundamentally saying is that these kids are basically just cheating and they're open about it. And But how about just honor and talking about that? Honor, honor, you know, absolutely. Honor and ethics are key. I mean, part of the problem is when those are grounded. I mean, right, this is old Burkean doctrine. They have to actually be um, anchored in the stuff of society. And if people feel like you're a sucker for playing by the rules, um, it's really hard to get people to take ethics seriously rather than as a punchline. 60% of four-year college students or recent college grads say they cheated to get into college. They lied about their race and ethnicity. They had somebody else do their essays. They lied about uh, their apprenticeships or um, experiences in high school. So part of the problem is that we have mainstream um, you know, shortcuts and corruption in a way that undercuts people who are trying to get kids to take ethics seriously. So one, I mean, absolutely. And, and I mean, I think the work you've done in free around promoting that kind of sense of personal agency is crucial. But another another less ethical and more pedagogical way to think about some of this is if we think about ChatGPT not just as a problem, but as a challenge, um, maybe it gives us a chance to get schools to do more of what they should have been doing all along. Hmm. Um, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me as an old high school social studies teacher just to tell kids, here, go write an essay about the civil rights movement. Um, that's not how you learn to write. You learn to write by thinking about what's the thesis, by wrestling with the points that you want to, uh, by, by the points that you want to make, by thinking through counter arguments. Um, instead, anybody who has seen a writing sample from a recent college grad encounters something which is 15 pages of rambling. The margins are as wide as you can get away with. <laughs> There's lots of endnotes to show that you're smart, whether or not those endnotes are high quality data or particularly relevant lots of run-on sentences, um, the idea that writing is an iterative process where students are being challenged to think at each stage is something that's really alien, in my experience, to most high school and college writing. And in order to kind of catch the GPT fraud, what you want to do is you want to bring, not necessarily, you could just have students write by paper and pencil with a teacher watching them to make sure GPT is not doing it, or you can bring student writing back into the classroom step by step, stage by stage. So there's oral presentation. So they're talking through with the teacher so that it's not give me 900 words, but bullet out the argument that you intend to make. Right. Show me an outline and, you know, send me, you know, the sources and what you're going to find from each source and that. Yeah. No, I mean, sort of bringing it back to the process, I think, makes a lot of sense. 
I mean, I do wonder, you know, to Ian's question about the ethics, like how much of this is also just cynicism, especially in the context of higher education. I mean, the fact of the matter is most of the people who are turning these papers are not going to be consultants or lawyers. Um, and they see whatever job they're going to get as something that does not necessarily require them to write, you know, well. And they look at this, you know, 15 page paper assignment, uh, you know, on the cause of the Civil War. And they think, you know, this has nothing to do with what I'm planning to do with the rest of my life. This is just a hoop that I need to jump through. And so why not get a robot to jump through it for me? Absolutely. So, I mean, this is, you know, um, Governor Shapiro, a new Democratic governor of Pennsylvania, for instance, struck a blow against uh, superfluous college degree requirements for state hiring, uh, unmasking 92 percent of jobs. It's something that Governor Hogan, a Republican, uh, did a couple of years ago in Maryland. It's something that, you know, I think many of us around AEI have pushed aggressively as part of this effort to stop forcing people to be hostages who have to purchase unnecessary credentials. So I think that's absolutely part of this. Students should be in school because they're learning things that matter. They should be in higher education because they want to be there for the skills or the knowledge or the doors it's going to open for them. So, so I, think, I, I think that's exactly right. But another way to think about this, too, is there are things that it really matters if we learn to do them. So it's a real problem, for instance, if a student passes a driver's ed test uh, with ChatGPT. Because um, if the student doesn't actually know what a red light means or green light means, that's a problem. Um, and so we actually want to make sure the student internalizes the knowledge. Same debate that we used to have in 1970s, 1980s, calculators. Uh, it's actually crucial that students learn mathematics. Yep. But once you've mastered mathematics, the value of having ninth graders spend five minutes work out complex, um, big numerical calculations by hand, there's not a lot of payoff. So one way to think about this is ChatGPT as a way for students to pull stuff together if they are doing things that aren't particularly relevant or interesting um, it's less of a problem where it's going to be a bigger, the biggest problem is when it becomes a crutch, a stand in for students mastering skills or knowledge that we think they really absolutely need to master, <laughs> like those fourth graders learning how to multiply and divide. It's so interesting, you know, so we've we just launched this new international baccalaureate high school. And uh, yesterday we presented this problem to um, uh, some incoming uh, ninth graders, and it, it's called the legs and heads problem. And, you know, there, there are a certain number of cows on a farm, and they have a certain number of heads and legs and a certain number of cows. But it's this interesting problem. But the way that IB requires you to provide an answer, let's say there's a, let's say there's a, a question. You only get one point for the final answer, but the two points you get, which is obviously the majority, is showing your critical thinking, right? And you ha literally have to lay it out. And it's it seems like the simple thing, but it's an incredible pedagogical um, exercise in that you can't you can't just guess, you can't just cheat. And so I wonder if, if it's just it's also just having more imagination around how you demand that children are presenting what they actually know and the process by which they are. Um, you know, coming up with their answers. And sometimes I fear that a big issue is just the laziness of professors who, who are just kind of allowing this stuff, even when they might know or suspect that something else is really being fabricated. 
Hmm. Well, you know, just like Naomi a moment ago was talking about the problem of forcing people to sit through, you know, learning experiences that they don't need or value. Just, you know, and why would we expect them to be invested in that process? Um, I mean, I think in some ways this is going to be a bigger problem in higher ed than K-12 because we know that huge numbers of faculty don't care about teaching. Uh, teaching is a tax they pay so that they can write stuff, so that they can conduct research, so that they can have a lifestyle that they find intellectually, you know, edifying. I mean, the number of faculty, even in the social sciences and humanities, who actively break down the writing process so that students are learning bit by bit, how do you fashion an idea? How do you develop a thesis? How do you marshal your evidence? Um, I, I mean, I've taught at a half dozen elite universities, and the number of times I've actually found faculty who want to talk about how do you teach students how to write is vanishingly small. It's just yeah. not something that they want to put the time and effort into. Well, they form and, it all out to these, you know, tutoring centers, uh, you know, which are run by other students. And then, you know, a lot of administrators actively discourage faculty from, you know, marking up students' papers. You know, oh, uh, you know, you're you're you teach political science, you shouldn't be teaching grammar. You know, oh, you teach, you know, psychology, you shouldn't be, uh, you know, worrying about writing style and things like that. So it's not, yeah, the the faculty are being actively discouraged, I think, from doing it too. That, that's exactly yes. right. And then, and, and then, you know, and then you've got this adjunct function that in order to be able to pump loads of dollars into growing, you know, institutional bureaucracies, um, institutions rely heavily on teaching fellows, as we saw with like the California grad student strike and adjuncts. Uh, and neither of these groups, is there any reason to suspect they have either the training or any incentive to put hours upon hours uh, into working with students on cultivated, you know, they're not going to get credit for it. They're not going to get promoted for it. They're not going to get recognized for it. So we've actually created in higher ed a real vacuum around the process of helping students learn how to write and express thoughts and really take ownership of uh, developing uh, ideas. And something like ChatGBT could strike, you know, I mean, it's both a threat to the way colleges do business a profound threat, but in that is a hugely potentially liberating and important development that's going to force us to ask, what the heck have we been doing? And can we do this profoundly better? Can we tell employers that we are graduating people who are going to know how to do this stuff? I mean, because it's one thing to say, like, write me 900 words, you know, on the Civil War causes when you're chat GBT. But it's another thing when an employer is presenting you with a particular problem that they want you to write a memo about. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think chat GBT is going to be able to explain to you, like, why this company has an advantage over us in this particular market based on data from last year. I mean, I, I I could be wrong, and maybe they'll be able to sort of string some sentences together if you give them the base, give ChatGPT the basic ideas. But it's not like you know writing these generic papers. Yeah, no, th th this is you're exactly right on, on a couple counts. I mean, one reason uh, that this is such a problem, say for K twelve and higher ed writing, is that so much of that writing is banal and mediocre, and so and ChatGPT tends to be banal and mediocre in a way indistinguishable from most of your mailed-in papers. Um, the folks who have found it easier to identify, um, who, who find it pretty easy to identify when it's ChatGPT, are folks who are specialists in fields 
uh, who are at the upper levels of legal theory or biochemistry, when they have asked ChatGPT to do it, the results start to get pretty funny um, because it just doesn't have any of the acumen to make sense of all the competing studies. It doesn't have any mechanism to distinguish good from bad research methodologies. And uh, to my, to the best of my understanding, um, some, an AI uh, is really trained on the body of knowledge that exists at the time it's unleashed into the world. Right. Uh, it's difficult to keep chat, keep chat GPT up to speed. And so, for instance, in an area where there are week by week or month by month developments, um, whereas a professional is going to know exactly what happened in the last few weeks, um, an AI engine is going to be months or potentially even years behind. So one thing I think one thing we should bear in mind, though, that, you know, there are actually human beings that run chat GPT, right? They're actually real people that are coming and and full disclosure you know Sam Altman who is actually a supporter of Vertex Partnership Academy is like what do you think that folks like Sam Altman and the folks behind ChatGPT are trying to do like their their intent one would think is not to dumb down the populace like what do you think they would say is the power of the technology that they are bringing to bear I mean I think I mean to my mind, and it's quite compelling. I, you know, I mean, I don't think uh, Mark Zuckerberg or anybody instrumental in the creation of Facebook said we are trying to create polarization uh, and uh, you know body body image issue for huge numbers of young people. Um, what they were trying to do was create connectivity and give people a way to access and build relationships. Um, look, I, I think ChatGPT is trying to get us out of so much of the aimless and pointless drudgery of just generating the word flow that, that makes up the world today. Um, if you think about the, the number of pointless hours spent writing spam public relations for any number of products or arguments or advocacy groups, if you think about the number of vapid summaries of TV shows and movies that have to, that people have to lean over their keyboard hour upon hour to generate. This is very depressing, Rick. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, I think uh, ChatGPT can give us back millions upon millions of hours and do these things more efficaciously and pull into the conversation data points that we might otherwise miss. In a lot of ways, it's just like the calculator. Um, if you go back to, say, you know, 1975, and you think about how many millions of people hours have been saved over the last half century, um, particularly among skilled engineers and mathematicians and scientists. Um, who have been able to focus on actually solving real problems that matter rather than putting in insanely large and uh, complicated numbers, um, punch card by punch card into like a Univac machine. But just like it's important that we understand the difference between using those tools and allowing th you know third graders to punch buttons rather than learn to do arithmetic, and we didn't understand that at first. This was a big debate in American education for much of the 70s and 80s while we sorted out what what, what was the right use of the calculator and what was an unhealthy use of the calculator. Yep. Um, I think ChatGBT can, you know, solves real problems and has real upsides. Um, but it's a, on the challenge for educators and educational leaders and ethicists to understand how do we integrate that into education in a way that does good rather than harm. Got it. And so can you 
are there regulations that should be placed on technologies like this? Like, because that also seems like a slippery slope too. Yeah, um, you know, I that 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 kind of stuff I'm going to leave to our friends who actually think about tech issues and tech regulation. Um, for me, I mean, I think there there are real lessons for though for how we think, you know, how schools think about it. Right. Uh, New York City, for instance, uh, has banned ChatGPT from district servers. I saw that. Yes, um, and that strikes me. It's kind of missing the point. I mean, the real problem is not that ChatGPT is going to be doing work at school. It's a tool in school. The chat is that kids will be using it at home. Um, And so I think, you know, rather than try to ban it from a district server, which doesn't seem to make a lot of sense at first glance, it's much more important that they work with, I think, teachers and school leaders on how are we going to approach student writing differently starting now? How are we going to use this as a chance to make sure kids are actually learning and at the same time, use that to ensure that we're holding both educators and kids accountable for mastering the things that we care about. Yep. That that makes a lot of sense. All right. Well, thank you so much, Rick, for joining us. This has been another episode of Are You Kidding Me? I'm Naomi Schaefer Riley. And I'm Ian Rowe. Rick, thanks for a great conversation. And you can get episodes of uh, Are You Kidding Me? on the AEI podcast channel or wherever you get get your podcast. So thanks again, Rick. My pleasure.